Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте Россия сегодня сейчас. вступает Привет. в силу поправки Это Навальный, я уже за свою работу, а сотрудники безопасности... годом вас. С новым веком. The largest land invasion in Europe since World War II meets the largest financial sanctions package in history. As the war enters its fourth week, Russia's advance on major Ukrainian cities is still bogged down and stymied by a fierce Ukrainian resistance. And Western sanctions on Moscow are beginning to take their toll, with Russia's economy cut off from global financial markets, its currency plunging to new depths, living standards plummeting, and major companies heading for the exits and potential in a potential default on the horizon. So we are effectively in a race against time. Can Ukraine hold out long enough for Russia's economy to crumble and undermine its ability to wage war? So stick around. We've got a lot to talk about. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Newton, Massachusetts, is the one and only Daniel Dresden, a professor of international politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University a non-resident senior fellow at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs and author of the books Theories of International Politics and Zombies and The System Worked, How the World Stopped Another Great Depression. Welcome back to The Vertical, Dan. It's great to see you. Thank you, Brian. It's good to be here. Good to have you. And also joining us from Washington, D.C.'s hip DuPont Circle neighborhood is my old friend and colleague, Maria Snegavaya, a postdoctoral fellow at the Kellogg Center for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Virginia Tech, a visiting scholar at the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at the George Washington University, and a non-resident fellow at the Center for a New American Security. Welcome back to the podcast, Maria. Thanks for having me, Brian. Um, Dan, I wanted to start out with you because... Ever since these sanctions have been imposed, I've wanted to get your take. These appear to be the most extensive sanctions the West has ever imposed. And together with the exodus of Western firms from Russia, we've effectively unplugged Russia from the global economy. What will we be looking at in Russia, really? Are we looking at something similar to the 1998 financial crisis or something more like the late Soviet period when there was really nothing on the shelves? And what is the timeline? How, how do you see this kind of playing out right now? I just want to get a sense because we're in this race against time, at least as I see it right now. And what, what's the timeline and when these sanctions really begin to bite the Russian economy? So the way I would put it is in some ways what we're seeing is – the Russian economy work in reverse. It's almost like we reverse the flow of time where going forward, Russia is going to start looking more and more like the old Soviet Union, except it's actually even worse than that because, you know, bear in mind, a fair number of the Soviet republics are now independent states and will actually be imposing sanctions on Russia, much like the Baltic states. Um, but, you know, you are seeing a situation where all of the sort of prominent Western multinational corporations, more than 400 of them have basically pulled out and are no longer going to assist Russia. Um, that, in addition to the financial sanctions that have been put in place, means you essentially have a Russian economy that ki is kind of operating like the old Soviet economy did, which is their primary relationship with the West was in terms of energy exports, and that's it. And that's the one thing that hasn't been touched so far um, in terms of the sanctions. Except by the U.S., but that's minor. Right, but that's minor. I mean, let's, let's be blunt. Energy sanctions against Russia will only matter if it's the Europeans no longer buying 
um, energy, and we don't know that that's sort of the line that has yet to be crossed. In terms of, of whether these sanctions will bite in terms of what's going on in Ukraine, I guess to be honest, my take is, is that the, what'll happen in Ukraine is gonna be more function of what happens on the ground in Ukraine mm -hmm. than in terms of the sanctions. Um, the sanctions are going to chew up the Russian economy. Uh, you are going to see it increasingly difficult for, let's say, Russians to fly on an airplane because Boeing and Airbus are not going to be servicing those airplanes. And eventually, you're going to start having some of those planes falling out of the sky. Um, you're not having Maersk or MSC uh, agree to dock in Russian ports. You're not having Visa or MasterCard or American Express agreeing to honor um, you know, uh, payments within Russia. So all of this is going to force the Russian economy back to... I mean, I've seen some estimates saying they're going back 30 years. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean it's going to collapse. Um, and also, there are ways in which, because of the energy exports, they'll be able to get access to hard you know, currency revenues. And I expect that they would actually be able to make um, their, their payments in terms of international loans. But in terms of standard of living, yeah, Russia is going to take a serious uh, setback. I don't think that Vladimir Putin cares about that all that much. I mean, it's not entirely that he doesn't care about it, but that... I don't necessarily think that'll that'll move him on Ukraine. What I think is going to move him on Ukraine is the fact that, according to at least the the, the New York Times, you're talking about seven thousand Russian soldiers dead in mm -hmm. the span of three weeks, which is, if true, a stunning number. Yeah. Um, and if it continues in that level, that's the thing that is going to force Russia to change its behavior much more so than the sanctions. I would suggest the sanctions, by the way, are not insignificant, but but I think it's it's. You know, it's worth remembering that one of the things that leads to the downfall of the Soviet Union is, you know, Soviet mothers starting to get upset about the war in Afghanistan. Yeah, and I, I want to get into the broader political uh, implications of this. And I mean, the, the word regime change is, is, is popping up more and more in discussions um, as, as this progresses. But Dan, do you see these? I'm going to bring you in in a second, Maria, but I want to get a sense of how, will, will these sanctions undermine Putin's ability to wage war? I guess that's what I'm trying to drive at. Will it will it undermine um, the war effort? I'm a little more skeptical of that because most of of Russia's weapons are, you know, there there Russia has a, a pretty sizable arms industry, and so um, it should. And artillery is cheap, unfortunately. So, uh, and that's the primary means by which Russia is inflicting damage on Ukraine. Um, it is interesting to note that Russia has requested um, both military and economic aid from China. And we've seen reports to that effect. We've also seen, you know, increasing levels of U.S. consultations with Chinese officials. Mm -hmm. Jake Sullivan met with his counterpart earlier this week. Um, we saw an announcement today that Biden and Xi are going to have a virtual summit uh, tomorrow. Um, if China decides that they can no longer pretend to be neutral and actually have to adopt a somewhat more critical posture toward Russia, that would, I think, have mm -hmm. a more severe impact on their ability to, to sort of move men and materiel um, elsewhere. But I don't think the sanctions are really going to have, it, mm. it's going to be hard for the sanctions to constrain Russia's military from doing what it's doing. I suppose the one way in which it, it would, would- Semiconductors. Be, well, semiconductors and logistics. But Russian logistics have been 
not great already. So yeah, that's a, that's definitely <laughs> that's, that's very that's very charitable. Um, yes, and, and, I wanted and, to use. I, I wasn't <laughs> sure what rating the podcast had, so I, I no, we, the words we, I could have used. <laughs> we're a family podcast, but we there we go. We, yes. we push we push the edge sometime. Yes. I think it's ironic that the debate in Washington prior to all this had been how you know thinking about peeling Russia away from to confront China, and now that's been kind of flipped on its head. Um, Maria, you had something you wanted to respond to with something. Uh, Nancy, but, Yes, thank you very much. I I actually uh, agree with many of these arguments. However, I would add that I think a longer term uh, goal of the sanctions is just make uh, the Kremlin run out of resources at disposal, right? We are possibly looking not just a short term uh, war in Ukraine, but this overall standoff that he's waging uh, with the West and uh, the cutting off uh, uh, Russia's export oil and gas revenues, forcing uh, the central bank to back up the ruble by essentially taking out the money from the uh, Russian population, right? It's clear uh, that the Kremlin essentially starts getting some money shortages that they did not expect. I think that would be one uh, additional point here. Yes, maybe they will not, maybe sanctions will not fundamentally change Putin's worldview. It's unlikely that anything can at this point, frankly, but they will, I think, um, limit the number of resources at uh, the Kremlin's disposal. I mean, a villain without resources is still better than the villain with resources. Yeah, and Maria, I want to stick with you because uh, you, you, as we all know, keep very close tabs on Russian public opinion. And you just published an excellent article in the National Interests about how Russians view the war. How do you see Russian society reacting to the war? How do you see Russian society reacting to the sanctions? How do you see Russian society reacting to the mounting casualties? And amidst all of this, Putin's escalating crackdown on dissent in his very unhinged speech this week, he refused referred to the domestic opposition as scum, um, that if I'm yeah. trying to remember what he exactly said in, in Russian, but it was like the, like a fly that accidentally goes in your mouth that you can spit out on the ground and clean yeah. society. It was, a, it, it was just a really shocking. We have, to, we have to ask which unhinged Putin speech at this point. I mean, it's not just one. They're, they're well, I, mean, I, was, I was struck by the contrast between Putin's speech yesterday and Zelensky's speech. Um, I think Kevin Rothrock tweeted like that they, they, they seem to have come out of different centuries. Um, and I said, yeah. Which I think is very much true. Putin wants to party like it's 1979. Um, but yeah, go ahead, Marie. Um, so it's common among opposition-minded people uh, in Russia who comment on the situation, right, to try to distance the Russian people from what Putin does. I think it's very kind of uh, connects uh, to what you said about Putin becoming completely unhinged, uh, multiple unhinged speeches. But in my article, um, and also based on multiple evidence, the polls, uh, talks, uh, some conversations with people uh, stuck in Russia or those who uh, want to stay in Russia, uh, we unfortunately cannot accept that hypothesis. I think the society in Russia provides prolific ground. Like maybe the Russians would not have willfully choose uh, to go towards Ukraine, but they don't actively disagree with the war. That is uh, 100% what the polls show. And I've taken a look at this point. I've seen at least seven or eight different polls, including the polls run in Moscow, the most pro-Western liberal city, as you know. They almost, almost uniformly show the embrace for this war at the level of uh, at least 50% before the war started. And by the way, this is the poll uh, that was run by CN, uh, CNN before um, uh, the war uh, began in February. But there's another 2014, September 2014 poll that shows just exactly the same numbers uh, in about 54% uh, in support of uh, Russia's military action in Ukraine. 
after the war started, uh, usually as political science predicts, we saw the rally around the flag effect of around 10 percent. Uh, and that's where uh, the society is at at this point. Of course, uh, the positions are likely to change uh, in the future, especially as sanctions get into place. For example, uh, one indicator already from the polls is that people with uh, high income, actually contrary to modernization theory, tend to more embrace, embrace the war at the high, at higher level than those with lower income. Uh, lower income people are worried that uh, the war will hit their economic potential, uh, probably correctly. Why is that? Uh, that's because of peculiarity of Russian middle class, most likely. It disproportionately con consists of uh, security officers, uh, some uh, state department officials. So those are uh, higher income people, but not necessarily people with more pro-Western, pro-liberal views. As sanctions hit, on, we're definitely going to see the uh, public opinion decrease. But will it decrease to large enough extent? extent? That's the question for me at this point, since uh, it's clear uh, the Russian society suffers not just from the lack of information alone. It's true that people who get information from internet primarily also are less likely to support the war. But it's also true that people who get information from TV primarily have other sources of information. We have multiple reports of um, uh, Ukrainian uh, journalist relatives trying to outreach to their uh, blood relatives in Russia, showing pictures, telling them what's going on, only to face complete blunt refusal, denial, um, uh, unwillingness to believe the reality because it cannot be, because probably you, Banderas, fascist uh, Ukrainians, quote-unquote, are bombing yourself to make us Russians look bad. Uh, what it tells us is that there's actually a deeper issue, right? It's the mental frame that's been created partly by Putin propaganda over all these years. Partly it's the Soviet legacy, talking of Putin living in 1979. It's not just Putin, it's a significant share of the Russian population that still lives there. If you go down in the dialogue with the Russian person all the way down to the, his or her beliefs, you'll get at the very end likely that they still believe that Ukraine essentially is a part of Russia. It's not a country, and Russia actually has a right to dictate what uh, this country what to do at the very bottom of it. So we're dealing, unfortunately, with a very, very deep problem where uh, only sanctions per se are not going to fundamentally alter uh, this dynamic. Uh, well, we're going to have to face it uh, for a while. We have to awaken, I think, to that problem and stop stop uh, saying it's only Putin's fault. Last but not last but not the least, unfortunately, yes. Right now, sanctions first and foremost they target, of course, people who are more Western Western. You, those likely with more pro-Western views, uh, pro-liberal groups, but also because of growing repressions, really a totalitarian feel uh, that you currently have in Russia, um, they are all fleeing the country. So we're also witnessing, unfortunately, a complete erosion of those mm -hmm. pro-Western liberal groups that we, Brian, have discussed in so many podcasts yeah. together. And that used to represent 15-17% of the population, most actively opposed to the war. Unfortunately, that's also another uh, reality. Yeah, I know. It's true, Maria. Both your friends and my friends, most of them are living in Vilnius or, or, or Riga or Washington. Belisi. Most of them have, have – have, some of them were living in Kiev until 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 recently have fled. Maria, I know in your research in the past in Russian public opinion, you've, you've um, identified this very sharp generational divide and this very sharp urban-rural divide. Is that is that – showing up in this in this in this polling yeah 
Uh, definitely more a generational divide shows younger uh, Russians as before as we've seen they are much more opposed to the war they were the one in in the protests primarily again if you look at the pictures uh, from the protest and by the way to their credit right to the credits of those Russians who oppose the war again 15 to 17 percent of the population by different polls they are also there Many of them are fleeing, uh, maybe will have to stay because they just can't escape the country. But um, uh, about 20,000, uh, 15, I think, 15, 17,000 people detained uh, in the protests, uh, anti-war protests across, across the country. When it comes to the rural uh, slash big city divide, still there to some extent, but uh, you also note uh, that, for example, Moscow, and I'm looking at Roman Uniman uh, polling that was just published actually a couple of days ago. In Moscow, right, most pro-Western, most pro-liberal city in the country, people ask, do you support special military operation in Ukraine? And the answer is 54% supported, right? So even in Moscow, it's 54, but in it's Moscow. probably... It's probably lower than what you get in some, I don't know, remote village in, I don't know, Urals, right? So in that, that village, you'll get probably, I don't know, 90% embrace for this action. But um, unfortunately, it's got to tell you something. So there is right. a current argument. Uh, just I will make that point quickly. Kirill Rogov, Russian political scientist, for yes. example, believes non-response rate has increased, right? It's possible that just uh, opposition-minded Russians oppose, uh, don't want to answer this polls. It's possible, unfortunately, there's no evidence to back them up. And temporal dynamics, so comparing polls from 2014, a way less repressive Russia yeah. uh, to today's polls, actually the results are very similar. So I'm not, I'm not, I don't believe as much in that theory, although maybe new data will show that I mean, some evidence is. I mean, an optimistic take would say you're looking at 2014, and if you see the Euro, because in 2014 it was like in the 90 percent area that was supporting this. If we're seeing an erosion down to 50, that is not insignificant. But, but nevertheless, Maria, your point is taken. The 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 Russian population needs to have an epiphany and an epiphany it needs to have a, a catharsis before this happens. Dan, I see Dan, I see your writing, which means it leads me to believe you have something very intelligent to say. Um, let me preface that with um I mean what is the political I mean because if we need an epiphany in Russia, if we need a catharsis to kind of change the dynamic there. Um, what does the political science and the IR literature say about this kind of thing? A combination of, an, of a war with high casualties, sanctions, declining living standards. Is there anything in the literature that kind of gives us a sense of what we could expect here? Sure. I mean, I suppose the good news is, is that generally speaking, authoritarian leaders who lose wars tend not to be authoritarian leaders for that much longer. You know, in the sense that that one of the surefire ways you can actually, you know, essentially get people within your selectorate, as it were, being willing to to push you out is if you make a catastrophic uh, you know decision that that affects their bottom line. In the case of Russia, though, there are reasons to believe, uh, or there are reasons to be skeptical that this would actually happen. Um, there's been a lot of loose talk in in the West about the oligarchs somehow yeah, no, that's getting nonsense. together and yeah, that's you know, and, and throwing Putin out. That's that. This isn't 19. This isn't 2001. It's not. It's not the 1990s. These people are as dependent on Putin. Exactly. Um, you know, if you want to talk about a Siloviki, um, you that's know, more viable. That's, that, more, that's viable. more viable. But I think at the same time, these are people who owe their position to Putin, and so it would be. I, I, I'm. Maybe they would do it, but then it's not like whoever replaces him necessarily would be any better. <laughs> any better. Um, the one thing that I don't know, and this is 
there's two other possibilities. One is, is that you actually do have a broad-based social revolution. I'm extremely skeptical of that happening. I mean, you have seen protests um, in a lot of the major cities, but one of the things I would add in terms of public opinion to what Maria said is that I am familiar with how things work in countries that are under heavy sanctions. And one of the things that target regimes are extremely good at is using sanctions as a way to shift blame for any economic misfortune. So, you know, we've seen this, we saw this in Cuba when the sanctions were imposed there. We saw it in Iraq when the sanctions were imposed there. Um, so you should be unsurprised that the, the Putin regime will likely use the sanctions as an excuse for anything bad happening in the Russian economy. And that narrative might sell for, for quite some time. The, the really big question, and I am not, I, this is where, I'm not sure I want this to happen to be absolutely clear. The one thing that I do wonder is whether or not the Russian military would finally decide they've had enough. Historically, because, they stay out of politics. Right. And by the way, historically, I very much want them to stay out of politics. <laughs> right. Me too. Because <laughs> we're talking about the second largest nuclear arsenal on the face of the earth. I don't want them thinking they should be able to take autonomous decisions. But if you're asking me what would lead to regime change, yeah, I think it's the military. I think the military is the only viable way this happens, and that thought terrifies me. Yeah, no, as it does me, and it should terrify everybody. Uh, in terms of like deflecting blame for the sanctions, uh, Putin did this in his speech yesterday. He accused the West of trying to cancel Russia, which is quite frankly what it is doing. Um, but he, I mean, it was also filled with a bunch of, of of lies, saying Russians are being persecuted in Western countries and so on, which is complete. Nonsense, uh, which I mean, Maria probably would have quite a bit to say about, about that. Um, Maria, I want to bring you in on that, but I also want to bring you in because uh, watching your excellent Twitter feed, and anybody that follows this should be following Maria's Twitter feed. You've been sending around a, a lot of interesting stuff about uh, people like elites evacuating Moscow, um, about senior officials in the Roskvardia and the Russian National Guard being arrested and so on and so forth. There seems to be a bit of elite discord going on. Um, I'm still trying to make heads or tails of it myself. I was wondering what your thoughts are on that, but I know you had something to respond to what Dan was saying. Uh, to follow up with what Dan said about shifting blame uh, because of the sanctions, I'm sure uh, that that's exactly I mean what Putin is doing, as we have discussed. Uh, Tim Fry, uh, my academic advisor at Columbia, actually has a paper on uh, sanctions. He was trying to find rally around the flag effect uh, after sanctions were imposed. To what extent, essentially, the information about sanctions make uh, Russian more united around the leader? He did not find any strong evidence in support of that, uh, at least based on my reading. So uh, that's like uh, good news. At least it will not, uh, sanctions will not reinforce Putin's standing. They might not fundamentally undermine his standing. But as we also have said uh, before, it's also unclear that uh, even if uh, Russian society sort of reevaluated their attitudes uh, towards this current regime, which I think will happen to some extent as a result of this really uh, serious sanctions, unprecedented, really unprecedented uh, mm. for such an economy that we are witnessing, the mechanism in which Russian public opinion can influence Putin at this point, frankly, is not clear uh, to me either way. So I don't think we really should be thinking of sanctions as uh, being able to force Russian people to overturn uh, Putin. Maybe that will happen, but I don't clearly, I don't see an obvious kind of mechanisms because it's clear if that's the regime that does not shy away from publicly bombing and committing all sorts of uh, human rights atrocities in the neighboring countries, at this point, what is, uh, was, what's to stop it from doing it it's against its own people? And that's, of course, it's a very dark thought. Yeah, uh, no, it once, is. 
On the, on the elite fleeing, there's a lot of uh, very unsettling <laughs> rumors uh, going around. I think at this point, and particularly in light of yesterday's disturbing uh, speech uh, Putin gave, I think we should be preparing to all sorts of uh, scenarios, unfortunately, tactical use of nuclear weapons included. So one reason why we see the fleeing, so the, there's a little turmoil clearly within the ranks, if that's true, and there are multiple sources, according to Krista Grozev, for example, who posted about it, uh, that confirm it, of course, given the, the Russia is uh, not successful uh, enough in Ukraine, clearly failed the Blitzkrieg, and even the long-term operation right now does not seem to deliver. They are failing to take any major city of Ukraine uh, right now. So, I have yes, to build yeah, exactly. Maybe Herson, exactly. We have to give credit to Mariupol citizens who are heroically, heroically resisting. Mikolaev. Mikolaev. So many amazing Ukrainians, really, really, really amazing. And so uh, from that perspective, the turmoil is expected, but the uh, rumors about uh, elites potentially escaping to Urals, it's more, uh, more disturbing. I also had some information from my own sources about uh, possibility of um, a nuclear shield of Moscow being prepared. So I think at this point we should be uh, getting ready to all sorts of um, unfortunate outcomes. Yeah, no, and this all points to something that's kind of like the elephant in the room right now, and that is that, you know, let's just face it, we're, we're, we're not really sure Putin's playing with a full deck right now. Um, I mean, you know, we've both, Maria, you and I have been following this man since his time in St. Petersburg, and something's off about him. Something is definitely off. Something has definitely changed. Um, we're not, it's, it's not clear we're dealing with a fully rational actor here. Uh, Dan, this is something, I mean, this is something that, you know, we all look at in IR. Um, how, how, how does it change your calculus when you're dealing with an, an adversary, a nuclear armed adversary, who may not be fully rational? Well, okay, this is where I'm going to put my social science hat on and say I don't like the idea of saying Putin isn't fully rational. I, I think the better question to ask is what information is Putin getting mm. and how reliable is that information? There's a difference between just saying that someone is a rational actor or not as opposed to saying, well, look, you might not agree with their preferences, but this is what their preferences are. Are mm. they acting consistently to advance those preferences given the information that they have? And I suspect that that is what Putin is doing. I think what is what is changed over the last couple of years with Putin um, has been the information that he is receiving. Um, and, and so for me, I think the most telling moment so far in terms of trying to figure out Putin's decision-making calculus was that bizarre Security Council meeting Oof, that yeah. occurred right before the invasion, where you had Lavrov and you had all the other, you know, Shoigu and you had all the other national security officials speaking. And it was clear these people were petrified. I mean, mm -hmm. these, these these people look like the child in the Saddam Hussein video when you know when he right. was like talking about Timmy getting milk or something. Um, and that I thought was the most interesting reveal, which is I don't know if there is anyone in Vladimir Putin's orbit who is willing to tell him what is actually happening. And in that scenario, it's not that he's acting irrationally; it's that he actually lacks the necessary information to understand what's going on, or that he's being told lies about why, you know, Russia hasn't achieved what it's achieved. So, I mean, we know, I think we've read reports that that various uh, foreign intelligence officials have been put under house arrest because it turns out that they were telling Putin that they had, you know, half the Ukrainian military um, 
bribed when it turns out that clearly was not the case. Right. Um, and so I, I do think that the disturbing question to ask is what will Putin do if he's backed into a corner? Because what we're beginning to see now is, at least on the military side of things, Putin is frankly running out of soldiers to throw into the meat grinder. I mean, we're now seeing yep. reports of forces being pulled from Abkhaz, you know, from South Ossetia. Um, this is going to prompt other actors to potentially take advantage of this. Mm -hmm. I thought it was telling that you've got the Moldovan government saying, you know, telling the UN General Assembly, we want Russian forces out of Transnistria now. Um, and, well, you know, ordinarily- I, I, I agree with that, but I don't want them into Ukraine. Right. But also, I would say, by the way, ordinarily, the Moldovans would never make this, you know, point of they don't, they, you know, like because because the Russians could absolutely chew them up if that was the only focus they had. But right now, yeah, I'm not sure Russia could manage offensive operations anywhere else um, at, at this point. And so this is a tremendous opportunity for some countries to try to take back pieces of territory that had been previously yep. thought of as sort of frozen conflict. Um, and what does terrify me there, and here I'll, I'll go with Maria's, you know, Putin, whenever he has been backed into a corner, has always played the nuclear card rhetorically, because that is Russia's principal claim, you know, to, to great power status. Um, and we've seen shifts in Russian military doctrine over time, suggesting that the use of tactical nuclear weapons would be something that would be on the table. There is part of me that worries that Putin, in an attempt to gamble for resurrection, would decide that the only way he can compel everyone else to back down is to actually use a nuclear weapon. Yeah, no, and this this is not a theoretical concern or a theoretical fear. It's very real. Um, there was a, a really good piece in the New York Times by Mikhail Zigar. Um, yeah. the, the the Russian journalist, author of All the Kremlin's Men, uh, former editor-in-chief at Dosh TV, somebody who's known to have very good sources inside the Kremlin. And what Mikhail wrote was that effectively Putin is – we all know he's isolated, but he's only he's, – he's really – who has his ear? And it turns out to be Yuri Kovalchuk. Uh, who's an old Putin crony going back decades. But Kovalchuk is into this kind of this mysticism that is kind of working its way into into a lot of Putin's rhetoric. And Dan, I, I'm not sure I want to take all the onus off of Putin here and just on the information he's getting, because I think people are giving him the information he wants to hear. He's positively obsessed with Ukraine and the quote unquote historical unity of Russia and Ukraine. Yeah. It's something he's been obsessed with for a long time. And he believes it is his historical mission to quote unquote regather the so-called Russian lands, um, which, 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 which effectively means Ukraine. Um, I, I, I want to be very clear what I'm saying. I'm not trying to absolve Putin. I'm not trying to say, you not, know, he, he's, he's by saying, I think he's a rational actor. I'm not trying to say, therefore, you know, it's just that he's uninformed. If he was better informed, he would back down. I agree with Maria. You, you get Russians sufficiently liquored up and you ask them about Ukraine <laughs> and they will answer as Maria said. I, I, and, and Brian, you and I lived there. We, yeah, 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 we, you know, yeah. Present company excluded here, but yes, of course exactly. Maria, um, <laughs> Right, but, um, and, and I think, in, but in that sense, that is what I mean when I say Putin is a rational actor. Putin is articulating beliefs. They're slightly more, you know, intellectualized as it were. I mean, there was that 10,000 word essay he published, you know, uh, last it's summer. Great, yeah. But he is saying things that I think ordinary Russians, you know, had previously believed. And I, I would add here, to be fair to the Russians on this, Ukrainian nationalism has changed dramatically over the last 25 years. Um, you know, in the sense of it is a much stronger force now than it was when you and I lived there. 
Of course, but it's also changed in a different way, Dan. And it's changed in that Ukraine has forged this inclusive form of civic patriotism. Right. Like the language – when you and I lived in Ukraine in the 90s, Dan, the language issue was a thing, right? Yeah. I live oh, in Odessa. Right. You live in Donetsk. Yeah. Um, depending on what part of the country you were in, you – I mean I, I was walking around Lviv with a, with a Russian-Ukrainian Razgovornik because I was a little nervous about speaking Russian. I would not be nervous about speaking Russian in Lviv. Now, the language issue has really gone away, and Ukraine has really become admirably a civic nation. A civic nation, and this war is only knitting it, knitting it closer together. Right, exactly. Uh, the, and if the, you had the, told me that 25 years ago, I would not have believed you. And so, that I think would in some I. ways, this is this is also, I think, by the way, again, a brutal but rational reason why Putin went into Ukraine in the first place, which is I think he also recognized that Ukraine was slipping away. Yes, the yes. action in 2014, yes, it got him Crimea, it got you know some autonomous oblasts. Although having lived there, I'm not sure why he wanted them. Um, but <laughs> what it did was it guaranteed that the rest of Ukraine moved ever closer toward Europe and toward the West. And I think that's the thing that he can't quite understand that he really did think that that when Russian forces moved in, they would be greeted as liberators. And right. the exact opposite has occurred. Right. Right. And as a result, he's like bombing Kharkiv into yeah. rubble, which is the most Russian speaking and ethnic Russian city in Ukraine. Maria, yeah. Go ahead. Small question, uh, Dan, if you don't mind. So we discussed this nuclear option, right? And the questions I'm uh, often asked uh, by journalists, like, what's the most likely Western response, if I might, if the nuclear option was to be used? And I hope, Brian, Brian I'm not switching uh, no, no, that's that fine. too much in the opposite direction. I honest to God don't know um, in the sense of, I mean, I assume what you would see is the the United States would automatically, you know, uh, go from DEFCON 5 to DEFCON 4 or DEFCON 3 potentially in terms of its nuclear status. Um, I mean, there would be there would be an escalation. I think that would also then potentially open the door for NATO military action. Um, I, I, I'm not saying that would actually happen, but the belief that Putin is willing to do anything to try to hold on to Ukraine, I think would create more space for for more um, NATO support for Ukraine and um, toward Russia. I think the other, but I will also add that the wild card on this is how China would react. Um, because it is also possible that if Putin actually uses a tactical nuclear weapon, that would also potentially, China has sort of, has been neutral, and I'm using air quotes, on that, but they are clearly uncomfortable with how this conflict has played out. The use of a tactical nuclear weapon for China might also be one of those clarifying mm -hmm, moments mm -hmm. where they decide, okay, we have th this, we, we want to revise the order, but not like this. Um, and 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 so that might be where you start seeing um, escalation. But I I I also have to be honest, if nuclear weapons are used, the likelihood of an escalation into a general nuclear war suddenly becomes that much more conceivable. Yes, yes. And no, it's, that is a terrifying problem. That, that is absolutely terrifying. Um, before we move into the second segment, I wanted to just get Maria's, to Maria's reaction on, on, on something. And we both read this, um, which I thought this excellent heartfelt piece by our common friend, Maxim Trudelubov, um, that was published in Medusa yesterday. Um, it was, it, to me, it was this expression of kind of, for lack of a better term, Russian liberal guilt. Um, Max basically was saying that like Putin's created this fake world, and we all kind of went along with it. 
Um, we, we didn't like it. We thought it was stupid and it would collapse upon itself. But we went along with this at the end of the day because we did not actively oppose it. And it was just this very, very heartfelt piece. I, I read it last night, Maria. I, I, I know you have as well. Uh, briefly quoting from it, he says, I acknowledge my deep personal failure in my attempt to take down the stage decorations back when this was still possible before the war. I was so sure that they would collapse on their own. Um, and I think what Max is expressing here is the, the, the view of a lot of Russian liberals who just said, there's no way he's going to do this. This is all pakazuka. This is just a, this is just a psyop. Um, but it kind of speaks to this broader alternative reality that Putin has created. And Max was saying, we all bear, we all bear some responsibility for this, even those of us that don't like it. Maria, I know where your politics are on this. We've talked about it quite often off mic. But what are your thoughts on both Max's piece and this sentiment? Uh, Max, actually, uh, my former editor uh, at uh, Vedomosti and dear friend, and I actually relate in a, in a lot of ways to this piece. I keep repeating that I think actually we all uh, should acknowledge, uh, all Russians should acknowledge a degree of responsibility for what is going on. And I'm glad that he wrote this really very moving article. Um, and I think that's the beginning. Uh, another article, uh, another on tweet, uh, tweet uh, relevant sort of discussion I saw today on Twitter by Maxim Mironov, a uh, member of Navalny team, um, who is also a professor in Argentina. Uh, essentially, try, Navalny team since the start refused to believe that Russians actually really embracing these uh, views. I personally was criticized by other liberal friends of mine saying how dare you accusing Russians of uh, supporting the war? Don't you don't you know that the polls are all fake? And I'm glad that there is finally an awakening going on. Maxim Verona, for example, posted that he at first rejected the polls, but after having spoken to some of his friends and relatives in Moscow, he uh, suddenly realized, especially of old age, he to his horror have realized uh, this is true. But I think we should go more further than that, uh, because Max actually writes uh, about still kind of puts the, the major blame on Putin. Like he says, he's poisoned not only himself, but all Russians. Uh, he is the architect of a hatred for which the world will now look at now, not only at him, but also at all of us, Russians and Russian citizens. I agree, of course, that Putin is uh, the key problem, but I also uh, think, and I repeat what I, what, what I started today's uh, conversation, is that the Russian um, mindset, right, the post-imperial syndrome, the Weimar syndrome, if you will, provided a prolific ground on which Putin's propaganda and crazy actions have grown quite successfully. They, they, he did not face sufficient resistance from the Russian society. And this is the problem with which we'll have to struggle if we want to really, re if we want and we ever get a chance to rebuild a new, different democratic Russia. We are not going to get away from accepting responsibility, not just blaming Putin for all the horrible atrocities committed, but also accepting responsibility for what Russians are believing, for the propaganda members are like the first TV channels or second TV channels, people who are pushing this propaganda forward for Russian soldiers who are killing Ukrainians right now as we speak. And I think this is a great beginning. Marx's article is a great beginning, but I think it's a really just a beginning of a very, very long road that we'll all have to take. Now, from, from your lips to God's ears, Maria, I've said this to you privately and to other Russian friends privately, the, the voices of thoughtful Russians who, uh, who, who are 
opposed to this war are very important right now and really need to be heard uh, right now, which is why I, I tried to amplify Max's piece as much as possible and wanted to talk about it on this program as much as possible. And that's a good way to segue. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and look at the world of European security and how it may look when this war is over. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Newton, Massachusetts is my old friend and colleague, Daniel Dresner, a professor of international politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, a non-resident senior fellow at Chicago Council on Global Affairs, and author of the must-read books, Theories of International Politics and Zombies, and The System Worked, How the World Stopped Another Great Depression. And also joining us from Washington, D.C.'s very hip DuPont Circle neighborhood is another old friend and colleague of mine, Maria Snegovaya, a postdoctoral fellow at the Kellogg Center for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Virginia Tech, a visiting scholar at the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at the George Washington University, and a fellow at the Center for American security. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный, я уже за свою работу, а сотрудники безопасности... годом вас, с новым веком. So what happens the day after? Regardless of how Russia's war on Ukraine ends, we will be in a new reality when it comes to European security and indeed when it comes to the global order. We are clearly departing the era of optimistic globalization. But what are we entering? Something resembling the Cold War with a divided Europe? Something resembling the great power competition of the 19th century? Or something else entirely that we haven't even imagined yet? A lot, of course, depends on how and on what terms this war ends. Two historical metaphors are being batted about in Washington at the moment. The Winter War between Finland and the Soviet Union in 1939-1940, when Finland overperformed, um, but at the end of the day lost 9% of its territory, or the Russo-Japanese War of, of 1905, which ended in an absolutely humiliating defeat for Russia and was actually the beginning of the end for the Russian Empire. The situation is, of course, extremely fluid, but I mean, we're three, we're three international relations geeks, and I thought we could kind of nerd out on this in the last part of the program today, because it's something I've been thinking a lot about, but I don't have any clear answers. My thoughts at the moment, we're clearly headed for a dividing, divided Europe. I've said that on this program before and in other, other public fora as well. Um, the question is just where the line is going to be drawn. Um, they could be drawn along Ukraine's eastern border with Ukraine safely nestled in the west. Or they could be drawn on Ukraine's western border, the scenario we don't want to see, with Ukraine, again, on the wrong side of this new Iron Curtain. Or they could be go, go straight down the Dnieper River, and Ukraine is going to be like the divided Germany during the Cold War. Beyond that, I don't have a clear sense of where this is going. Dan, you are a, the, the IR geek par excellence, so nerd out for me, please. I'm going to preface this by saying this, this is what I very frequently call a yacht question. 
by which I mean that if I actually had the answer to this, I would not be speaking to you. I would be on my yacht somewhere, um, you know, enjoying life because I'd be really, really rich. Um, Let me put it this way. I think the most, the, the two most important strategic takeaways from what we've seen so far in terms of, of world politics is first, it turns out Russia is not nearly as powerful as most people thought it was a month ago. Um, you know, the Russian military had a reputation for being able to pursue sort of gray zone activity. You know, we saw it, it essentially do what it wanted to do in 2008 in Georgia, in 2014 in, in Ukraine, in Syria in 2015. Um, and there were Europeans that were very, very worried about, you know, the idea that Russia would pose that significant a threat to Europe. What has happened in Ukraine, I think, has caused a dramatic reduction in terms of perceptions of what Russian military power can do, which should be terrifying to Putin because that has been his calling card. That has been the way in which he has often tried to get what he wanted. The other major strategic change potentially is that, you know, Russia and China in particular are very fond of talking about the idea that it's a multipolar world, that you know we now have multiple great powers. There's the United States, there's Russia, there's China. What should terrify Russia in particular is if you have to add Europe to that equation. In other words, if you have a European Union with a Germany that is quite significant, you know, convinced that it needs to rearm itself, and not only that it's significant, you know, convinced it has to rearm itself, but the rest of Europe perfectly comfortable with that idea which is not something that I thought would have been true quite so, you know, relatively recently. Um, suddenly you were talking about another great power that, you know, essentially- Aligned to the United States. What? Aligned with the United States. Aligned with the United States and roughly the same power as the United States. Um, if I'm Russia, that should be terrifying yep. because it's the exact opposite of the strategic, you know, situation that I, I desire. Um, and so I think that regardless of how short of Putin's downfall and a genuine revolution in Russia, um, which, you know, like, and, and, you know, if you want to say the other possible way you can think about this is the, the World War I example um, mm. and how that ended. Right. Um, but short of that, you are talking about a Europe that is now going to invest in significant amounts of hard power resources. Um, and as a result, that means Russia's strategic space is going to be even more crimped. Yeah, no, Dan, just a couple of thoughts here on this one. There were warning signs that the Russian military wasn't as strong as we thought it was. Yes. In the 2008 Georgia war, the yeah. Russian, I covered that for Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, the Russian military underperformed, re, I mean, really underperformed in Georgia. The right. problem, then, the, what saved them is that the Georgians underperformed even more. That's right. basically and, what saved them. And they didn't quite do terribly well in 2014 in Eastern. In Donbass, that's what I was going to say, in yeah, Donbass, yeah. the Ukrainians put them to a draw. I, but the importance of power here is that, let me put it this way, one of the, the ways in which military power matters is first what you can actually do with it, but it's also the reputation for power. Yep. And I think where Putin had succeeded was in, in cultivating this reputation for mm. the competent exercise of Russian military power, and that is not what we have seen right. Um, right. in Ukraine. You are channeling Hans Morgenthau, my friend. I can, I can, I can <laughs> the with the reputation. <laughs> yes, yes, do, do you agree with me, Dan, that we're headed for kind of a divided Europe scenario right now, and that the only thing that we're kind of like is being decided at the moment is where those lines are going to be? I mean, divided Europe, maybe, but I'm going to- Divided be, broader Europe. I don't yeah, mean I was gonna divided say, Europe. You, how, what you mean by Europe. I'm going to be provocative here. I, there are ways in which I can see, yeah, the, in which the line is drawn literally at the Russian border. Um, I'm not sure Lukashenko is going to last. Uh, no, nor, nor am I. Uh, in nor Belarus, I. I'm not sure Transnistria is going to last 
as a result of what's happening. Now, I, I, by the way, I want to be clear here. I'm not saying, yeah, that those are guaranteed things. That yeah, but they're but they are within the realm of like reasonable speculation, which they yeah. weren't a few weeks ago. Right. And if that's the case, the only part on the other side of the divide is Russia. Right. And and I, you know, Luhansk and Donetsk maybe, but like right. that's it. There's no other country. Yeah. No, I mean, but so we're looking at a divided Eurasia is a more yeah. a more apt way, way to put it. it. Yeah. Maria, what are your thoughts on this? I know you are. Yeah, I, I, to jump in, I completely concur with everything that's been discussed on this topic about uh, Russia being the only one country on the other side. That's the question um, that's often discussed is about the possibility of the Third World War. In my answer to that, how is it going to be a world war when there is Russia against everybody else on the other side, right? Maybe because there's everybody else on the other side, that's a world war. But Russia will be fighting itself. It's clear. I think uh, the, good, the great news from so far is that China is really not very much in support of what Russia is doing. At least it appears. And the US at least somewhat is able to kind of draw secure Chinese cooperation, at least in some areas when it comes to, say, backing up sanctions on Russia, at least with some uh, actors within China. Um, also, Putin, as Dan says, really a unifier of the West. We see a lot of the issues that emerged used to exist between the EU we and We should build US. a statue to him in front of NATO headquarters. <laughs> and Putin also Ukraine nation builder, right? You've been discussing yep. how Ukraine nationalism has changed, but part, part of that, I think Putin, has to get credit where the credit is due. <laughs> Since 2014, he has uh, really done a lot to unify Ukrainians. There's no longer Eastern and Western divide, the ones we used to talk about, right? You see how Mariupol heroically fighting against the aggressor, and essentially all of that is gone. Uh, I think afterwards Ukraine will emerge. I hope it stands uh, successfully and re-emerge as a very successful, successful and very strongly unified country, which also I think will eventually be guaranteed, right, a pathway already given a pathway to EU and to the international Western institutions. And I think overall, despite this tragic, horrible moment, uh, the, the future of Ukraine is bright. Uh, yep. When it comes to Russia, unfortunately, the opposite is true. Uh, Russia's future is the darkness. I think, it, as you, Brian, said, depends largely on how this conflict plays out. But so far, to me, the most realistic scenario, unfortunately, is nuclear Iran or something along those lines, which is not, of course, the most pleasant um, um, issue to have. But I think Russia's existence in this current shape and form is really understood by the world, not just the West, but the world as a strategic threat. And I think uh, all of what Putin is doing, he's pushing the international community into rethinking the international uh, security design where one not completely rational person on top of a nuclear power, unconstrained at all by public or the elite, is able and willing to do whatever uh, whatever he wants. Uh, this is a scary thought. I think it sort of comes to, and a lot of people across the world come to realize, if ever we get to live in the world where we get to sort of reintegrate Russia into the uh, international community, I think that, as my friend Lukas Adamski uh, from Center of Russian-Polish Dialogue has posted, the 4D principle needs to be applied, uh, the one that once once applied on, to Germany uh, post-Hitler, demilitarization, de-imperialization, de and democratization. Mm -hmm. I think what we have seen, uh, Russia, unfortunately, 
internationally is unable to go to take the difficult route uh, by itself. I mean, few countries could possibly, uh, but Russia is an issue for international security today, and we need to be thinking about ways to reintegrate it through very radical reform. And this is what I want to go to before we drop out. Just a quick aside on that, picking up on what you're saying, Maria. I mean, I've said this before, and I think it, mer it merits repeating. We we all owe a great debt of gratitude to the Ukrainians. Uh, they've created this, they, they're by, by, by their tenacity in fighting this off, they are they are providing a real clarifying moment for us all. I mean, the mask is off as far as what Russia is all about. Um, but they're also teaching us in the West, you know, that democracy matters and it's worth fighting for. And the Ukrainians are showing us that right now. The truth matters um, in this era of disinformation and so-called fake news. Um, and the, the, the truth matters. And the, the, the world is getting the truth about this. When this is all said and done, if the Ukrainians survive this, I personally think, and this is for Europeans to decide, not for uh, uh, Americans, but I, I think it's going to be impossible to not admit Ukraine into the European Union. And I also think it's going to be pretty damn difficult not to let them into NATO if they survive this. Um, but what I want to welcome to either of you to chime in on, on that if you disagree. I see Dan looking a little skeptical. But um, but one thing, the thing I wanted to close on, it's something we really haven't, we've kind of skirted around it in this uh, in, in this program, is that what if it is, Dan, the World War One scenario? What if we're looking at regime change in Moscow? How does that change everything? What are, what is the, what is the price of readmitting Russia to the community of law-abiding nations. Uh, what, what Are we gonna make the same mistakes again that we made in the 90s, or hopefully have we learned from the mistakes of the 90s? How likely do you see this, and how should we behave if that is the case? I mean, do we fall in love again, or do we, do we approach it skeptically? I guess I would say the follow, again, a couple of wild cards here. The first is, is that in that scenario, which is very optimistic, but let's run with but it. But not impossible. Not impossible. How quickly does, how long does it take for the West to eliminate sanctions? Um, and that is something that Americans are really, really bad at. We're really good at imposing sanctions on countries. We are horrible at lifting them. I mean, how, when did Jackson Vanek get lifted? Yeah, I know, it was in the 2000s. It was, yeah. in, the, it was in, I think it was 2010 or something, or, you know, it was like 2008 or something, which is an absurd, 11. you know, uh, you know, logic. And this is one of the problems. So hopefully, the sanctions that are currently in place, unless you know you see a continuation of the status quo, will not be ratified by Congress. Because if Congress passes those sanctions, trying to lift them is going to be phenomenally difficult. A second and related question to ask, by the way, is that if there is a, a regime change in Russia, again, how does China react to this? Because a regime change in Russia would be a massive strategic setback for China mm. um, as well. Uh, and I honestly think there is then some risk of China potentially, I, I, this is normally a scenario that I ridicule, but the idea that then China might decide they want to take action in Siberia um, to mm. try to secure natural resources is not out of the realm there, because it, it, in a situation right. where the Russian state is disorganized, that would actually potentially offer a pretext for China to move in. Um, I don't think they would want to do this, to be clear, under any other scenario, because there's no reason for them to. But it is possible that in that moment, um, she could be fearing uh, revolution as well, and that would be a way in which he could potentially um, cement his hold on power. And then the question, in terms of whether or not, you know, a Russia in could be brought into the West fully, if you have, you know, a Navalny in charge, or if you have something like that, I guess I, 
I guess I have sufficient amounts of Slavic pessimism to not entirely believe that, or to believe that if that does happen, once again, we will yo-yo between this, you know, unbounded optimism and then that optimism dashed um, because it's going to be very difficult for Russia to change the institutions that it needs to change yes. in such a way that it can be integrated with the wider, you know, Western community. Yes. I, I want that not to be the case, but I am skeptical. No, and I am with you on the skepticism in this. I suspect Maria is too. I mean, I've always said we don't really just have a Putin problem. We also have a Russia problem. Putin didn't come out of thin air, yeah. right? Um, he's the product of a system of what Alenyeva calls sistema, right? This system of corrupt kind of networks in Russia and uprooting that is going to be really hard. And I tend to be a, I mean, I thought these sanctions, these are things I was calling for back as far back as 2014, right? What we're implementing now. Um, and I was calling for them not to punish Russia for any specific action, but to protect the West, to protect the United States and its allies from malign Russian influence, which I'm not quite sure is going to go away even when Putin is gone. Maria, uh, go ahead, Dan. Uh, Just Maria. one quick thing. There is one way in which this scenario would be a little more optimistic, which is it's always worth remembering a lot of the sanctions that are in place right now against Russia, the ones that have hurt Russia the most – aren't the ones that the states have imposed. It's been the self-sanctioning that companies have engaged in. Mm -hmm. um, and that is, in some ways, that the impact of that has been far greater. If there was an actual revolutionary change in Russia, one of the advantages is that suddenly you would have these 400 companies have, finding a reason to go back into Russia. So in some ways, it hopefully would not necessarily be as, as severe or as difficult for some of these sanctions to be lifted. And you would have... You know, in contrast to what happened in, let's say, 1990, stronger networks between Western multinational corporations and Russian society. Now, whether that would actually mean that it would work out better, I don't know. But it, it, that is one. Right. right. I want to give the last word to Maria here to respond to this. And I am very mindful of the clock because if I don't wrap it up pretty soon, my awesome production team is going to impose sectoral sanctions and full blocking <laughs> sanctions on me. <laughs> Go ahead, Maria. I just uh, will say that I totally uh, concur with everything that's been said. Unfortunately to me, the most uh, what ends up to be a horrible drama and tragedy for uh, Ukrainian people, uh, I think ultimately will become the nation building event for a really strong, amazing country in Europe, but also will it becomes a catastrophe for Russia. Well, uh, its future is really, really gloomy, uh, in the near, at least in the near time. And frankly, I don't see a lot of mechanism for which it would magically reform in the near future, precisely as Dan said. Uh, and I want to also to add that by saying that I definitely uh, wanted, as a Russian, to apologize uh, to my uh, to all Ukrainians for what my country, unfortunately, uh, is doing in Ukraine and commits it. There are, please know that there are Russians who deeply, deeply uh, feel uh, the sorrow and uh, horror about the atrocities that are currently unraveling. And I really wish the victory uh, to Ukrainian people and Ukraine as well as a country. Here, here, and I want to add to that. I mean, you one possible positive scenario for Russia at the end of this, and I've always said this: the best hope for a democratic Russia is a bit democratic Ukraine. If you, if seeing a democratic Ukraine fully, fully embedded in Europe, the effect that is going to have in Russia that could spark the catharsis and the epiphany that we've all been hoping for in Russia. So on that note, on that optimistic note, because I'm an optimist by nature, I want to wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I would like to remind you that you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Newton, Massachusetts is my old friend and colleague, 
colleague Daniel Dresner, a professor of international politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, a non-resident senior fellow at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, and author of the books, Theories of International Politics and Zombies, and The System Worked, How the World Stopped Another Great Depression. And joining me from Washington, D.C.'s very hip DuPont Circle neighborhood is another old friend and colleague of mine, Maria Snegovaya, a postdoctoral fellow at the Kellogg Center for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Virginia Tech, a visiting scholar at the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at the George Washington University, and a fellow at the Center for a New American Security. Thank you both for an enlightening discussion. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. I'd also like to thank our awesome and patient production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Zachary Smith handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes, and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big, fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production 